0: Currency woes are nothing more than spilled milk. Johnson & Johnson reports earnings on this episode of Industry Focus. Welcome to Industry Focus Healthcare. I'm your host, Christine Hargis. I'm joined via Skype, as usual, by Motley Fool Healthcare contributor Todd Campbell. Today, we're going to talk about Johnson Johnson's earnings and definitely not cry over said spilled milk. So, Johnson & Johnson, really important company to talk about. They usually set the tone for the earnings season, especially in the healthcare sector. This is a humongous company, $280 billion in market cap, you know, well-known as being a dividend-paying stock. Um, they are one of just three AAA-rated publicly traded U.S. companies. Really big deal. So, they report earnings. Um, the stock goes up about 4%. This was on Tuesday when they finally came out with the information. And what should we be focusing on?
1: Well, you know, as you said, Johnson Johnson kicks off the flood, or you know, maybe I should say the blizzard, given what you guys <laughs> endured down in the Washington area uh, this past week in terms of snow. But uh, the, the the we'll call it the blizzard of EPS reports uh, for the fourth quarter and for the full year of two thousand fifteen. And uh-huh. you know, investors may be looking at it and saying, okay, well, you know, I'm looking at the headline numbers, and you know. Sales in the quarter of 17.8 billion down 2.4 percent, full year sales of 70 billion down 5.7 percent. That doesn't sound that great. So, why would shares be rallying?
0: Yeah, and as alluded to earlier in the episode, a huge, huge part of this was currency. So Johnson Johnson lost seven and a half percentage points of growth in two thousand and fifteen, meaning that their full year sales actually fell by five point seven percent but should have been in the green so this just is the price of being a multinational conglomerate
1: yeah, there are two major things that impacted results that if you and granted there 's going to be some caveats you and I will chat about a little bit more for investors you know you can 't just pick and choose what you want to include, but if you look at an apples-to-apples apples comparison for j and over the last couple of years, and you say, okay, well, if I'm just interested in how the company is doing operationally, you know, how, how is management executing, then maybe I don't want to focus so much on one-time events, you know, say acquisitions and divestitures, and maybe I don't want to focus too much on currency, because as a multinational, that's, you know, par for the course, and then maybe, and this one's a little bit more of a stretch. I don't want to focus so much on you know the one-time benefit of a drug that that turns out to be a flash in the pan.
0: Now that last one that you mentioned, I thought that was one of the most interesting points on this call, and I, I don't know if you've ever seen this before. I've never seen something like this before. Essentially, what happens is Johnson Johnson's hepatitis C drug, Olysio, just gets absolutely crushed, and they knew it was going to happen. They'd been signposting it, but they essentially tuck in hepatitis C revenue right in there with your like net of items, which are usually just going to be divestments and acquisitions. But a couple of times in this call, they're listing, "Oh, well, if you ignore divestments, acquisitions, and also hepatitis C," and I'm just sitting there like, "Well, is that cheating? Can you do that?"
1: I think it would definitely be cheating if they said ignore the benefit for this year, but continue to con- to you know uh, the the drag on it this year, but you know it, you know embrace the benefit that you had in 2014 from it. Um, but so yeah, so let's just go back in the wayback machine for a second Your and explain to the listeners what we're talking about. In late 2013, two companies were in a major horse race to reinvent. Um, patient care and hepatitis C, those two companies were Johnson and Johnson, which was uh, developing Elysio and Gilead Sciences, which was developing Savaldi Alisio won FDA approval, I believe in November of thirteen and harni uh, i 'm sorry Savaldi won it in December of thirteen. However, despite both of them being good drugs, Savaldi ended up being the dominant drug, winning most of the market share. Um, because, frankly, it performed better uh, overall than Alessio. That being said, doctors did discover that if they took Alessio and combined it with Sovaldi, it worked really well in patients that had tough-to-treat hepatitis C. So sales of Alessio ended up coming in, in in 2014 at about $2.3 billion. Which was, you know, I, I don't want to call it a bonus, but it, it certainly wasn't all that expected that they would do that well in 2014. In 2015, those sales fell off a cliff, if you will. I mean, it was still, you know, sawed 621 million, I think it was, um, but they fell off a cliff from the 2.3 billion. So you lost a lot in sales, and the reason for that was last uh, in, in October, um, Harvoni had won approval. For use in genotype one, and Harvoni was a better option. Single tablet, less costly than trying to use the combination of Elissio and Savaldi. So as a result, you know it became a niche status drug. So Johnson's trying to say, okay, listen, that was a that was kind of a one time event on the drug front. You know, Elysio sales surge and then they fall. So maybe just don't count that when you're looking at our performance.
0: And so it kind of makes sense. I mean, they have got this gigantic pharmaceutical subsection of the business, and they knew that this is exactly what was going to happen, and they didn't want to say, look at how much our pharmaceutical unit is tanking, because that's not really the case. Uh, What what are some of the growth drivers here that stood out to you in the pharmaceutical unit?
1: Well... Investors should remember that Johnson & Johnson has three major segments, okay? It does a lot of business in pharmaceuticals, obviously. It also does a pretty good amount of business in medical devices. And then it also has a, a, a $13 billion or so a year uh, business in consumer goods where it sells brands like Band-Aid and Listerine. Of course, that's um, why
0: most people know the Johnson & Johnson name.
1: Right, exactly. Um, you know, the, the reason that people may want to not think too much about Alisio and think instead about the other drugs that Johnson and Johnson has underway, uh, going on here, and in, in the success that they're having with these other drugs. Um, one of my favorites of all of those drugs has got to be Invokana. Uh, it's a type two diabetes drug. Um, it's an SGLT two drug, which simply means that it works very differently uh, by helping to prevent how much uh, uh, yeah. glucose gets reabsorbed, and therefore. It allows more to get excreted by the by the patient. Um, that drug is taken off like gangbusters. Sales more than doubled in the past year to 1.3 billion. Um, it's also got some other really in, in intriguing drugs that are doing well. Uh, Imbruvica, which is an oncology drug that they're partnering up with AbbVie that's now over a billion dollar a year drug. If you know globally. Um, their share of that rose from 200 million to over 600 million uh, last year. Um, it's also got a, a a drug for psoriasis called Stelara, which is you know dosed much less frequently than their top-selling Remicade uh, and other anti-TNF drugs that are used in autoimmune, autoimmune disease drugs. And that drug, you know, saw sales jump. Significantly to 2.4, 2.5 billion last year. So there's a lot of drugs that are doing very well for the company that you know may the investors may want to focus on instead of Alisio which is you know basically going to continue just to see its sales decline and decline and decline as as other hepatitis C drugs come to market.
0: One thing I'll add on Remicade is that this drug has kind of been the the pivotal. Uh, The focus of the discussion on biosimilars and whether or not that threat will become apparent to Johnson & Johnson. As a reminder, biosimilars are essentially generic versions of biologic drugs. So they're a lot harder to make. They're not going to sell for as much of a discount. And they're pretty new. So we're still kind of figuring out exactly what it means for some of these gigantic healthcare companies to face competition from newly introduced biosimilars. Interestingly, apparently in Canada, where there is a biosimilar out for Remicade, they're still growing Remicade sales. So that's a pretty promising sign. But of course, it's something that people are questioning in the U.S., especially as apparently the drug is already using market share, losing market share, which I can only assume is due to some of the other drugs in this pretty competitive space, but yeah, regardless... I mean, the
1: anti-TNF market is is competitive. It's also one of the best-selling markets in the world. You know, you've got Humira, which is an AbbVie drug that, that hauls in fourteen billion dollars a year. You've got Remicade, which hauls in six point eightish billion dollars a year um, for Johnson and Johnson. And you're right. I mean, this is a major focus of biosimilar makers because the patent on Remicade has expired in the EU. Um, so you're now facing off against um, um, biosimilars in those markets that are made by companies including Hospera, which is owned by Pfizer now. Um, and you know, as we go forward, you know, investors can't ignore that, okay, 9% of Johnson & Johnson's revenue comes from Remicade. If the U.S. patent's going to expire in 2018, what's Johnson & Johnson going to do over the next two years to make sure that you know, they don't end up losing? you know, the 4 or $5 billion in sales that they're collecting in the U.S. off of that drug.
0: Yeah, and the tone of the call didn't really seem too concerned with it. I mean, they said, yeah, we're going to keep defending our patent until September 2018. And even beyond that, we don't see it as a huge threat. So that'll be for sure something to keep an eye on. But again, kind of years out. In more recent news, um, even before they announced earnings, there was some talk of a medical device unit restructuring. And this came out actually on my birthday on january 19th so not too long ago um, and this is again one of the pretty important three units that Johnson Johnson has and there's going to be a huge shakeup within it
1: yeah if you would, you know if you adjust out all of the items right um, currency drag um, uh, all the other impacts that that uh, weighed down on results last year on a reported basis medical devices still you know lost ground Okay, it was the one segment that, that didn't do very well. Um, you know, that's concerning, obviously, to some because you look at it, you say there's 10,000 seniors turning 65 every day. And obviously that's going to, re- you know, those seniors are going to require more hip replacements, more knee replacements, more j- joint surgery. A lot of different devices um, will will, you know, device sales will be tied to to, to aging of America. So the company is recognizing that and they're doing a number of different things. They're restructuring in order to, to come up with some cost savings. They're also doing something that's kind of interesting. They're trying to work more closely between their different segments. So for example, to tie in pharmaceuticals more with medical devices. So they're working in concert with one another to develop next generation products rather than working as independent.
0: Which sounds like a good idea, you know, build build those synergies and whatnot. Um, Along with the restructuring of this whole unit, there's going to be a lot of cost cutting. Apparently, four to six percent of the workforce is going to be cut. Um, I was actually talking to my mom on the phone last night, and she's not like a huge investing kind of follower. Like she listens to the podcast every once in a while, but she mentions this to me. She's like, "Oh, what are you talking about tomorrow on the show?" I was like, "Oh, we're going to cover Johnson and Johnson earnings," and she's like, "Oh man, they're cutting three thousand jobs." I was like, "How did you know that?" But it's because Johnson Johnson's a New Jersey company. That's where I'm from. That's where she lives, um, and so that's a big deal for a lot of people, right there. But I mean, you look at it from the personal standpoint, it's like, oh, that's not good but from Johnson Johnson's perspective and from the perspective of an investor it's supposed to save 800 million to a billion dollars over the next 2 years
1: yeah and that's important because you know Johnson & Johnson they're forecasting that their growth over the course of the next 5 years is going to be greater than industry growth so healthcare you know industry is expected to go 3 to 5% they want to grow organically more than that and they want to grow their EPS more than they're growing their organic growth Obviously, to do that, you're going to have to cut some of the costs and make those divisions more profitable. Obviously, this is one of the ways they're doing it. Of course, that creates a whole nother problem because it means more money flowing onto their balance sheet. Um, you know, a balance sheet that's already pretty bloated.
0: Yeah, you totally open a can of worms there, which I definitely want to dig into. So. We've been thinking about Johnson & Johnson's merger and acquisition M&A activity for a long time because, as you mentioned, they're sitting on this infl- inflated balance sheet. They've got $18.5 billion in net cash, which means $38.5 billion in cash and marketable securities and $20 billion of debt. They didn't act in 2015, citing that everything is too overvalued. But clearly, companies have gotten a lot cheaper at this point.
1: Yeah, they're going to be selective, though. I mean, if you listen to the conference call, and I advise, I think every investor should try to tune in to the conference call, at least read the transcript, scroll through it. CFO Caruso had a couple of interesting things to say on that conference call about this cash stockpile. One of the things he said is it's a higher level of cash than they typically hold. But he also went on to say that they're going to act, and they will act, but they're only going to act when they see the right value in the right deal at the right price with the right partner. So there's a lot of caveats that are going to be associated with any deals that they do. And, you know, you and I talked, I think it was last week or the week before, we were talking about how J&J has indicated that they have a preference towards smaller bolt-on acquisitions. That's probably where they're likely to focus, especially if they can get, you know, teams that fit that, you know, mantra, if you will. Right price, right people.
0: Yeah, and I'll, I'll quote Alex Gorsky, the CEO here. He says smaller tuck-ins are frankly more straightforward to get done. So that's showing your hand right there. Although immediately after he says that, he does kind of pivot to say that you know we do consider bigger acquisitions, but it seemed to be mostly in the consumer segment that they would even think about it.
1: <clears throat> yeah, um, you know, so I mean, I think that investors are going to see that there's going to be money that's going to get spent. Um, But I wouldn't expect any any deals that are going to be of such a size where it's going to impede their ability to continue to send money back to shareholders through buybacks, which have been a very important part of the company's uh, capital spending plans, and also dividends, which, you know, I mean, Johnson & Johnson is one of the best uh, dividend-paying stocks in existence uh, today.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's a 3.1% dividend, a company with a really, really strong history of paying such a dividend. I don't know about you, Todd, but I am definitely personally bullish on Johnson & Johnson. Um, Probably a good time to remind people that we might have interest in the stocks that we talk about on the show, and the Motley Fool could have formal recommendations for or against them. Don't buy or sell based solely on what you hear. Go read that conference call transcript. Um, But just to wrap up, I mean, this is the closing of the 2015 books for J&J. How are you feeling about the company? Thumbs up? Thumbs down?
1: I'm going to give it a thumbs up. I mean, obviously, they got to figure out how to replace the revenue that's going to get lost from Remicade. But they've got some really interesting drugs that are coming through the pipeline. They've got 70 products in... Uh, novel drugs that they're studying in early stages of development. They've got a, a, a recent filing they've done for Invocana plus metformin combination therapy that could be a big seller. They recently got a new drug on the market for multiple myeloma. I'm going to give it the thumbs up. I think this is a, a company that investors can continue to stash away for the next decade, forget just one year.
0: Nice. So, speaking of looking towards the future, uh, we're almost through January already, which is hard to believe. And I just wanted to let all of our listeners know that we put something together uh, for you guys to check out, which basically is a list of all the people that you hear on Industry Focus, or a lot of them anyway, uh, our resolutions. So, if you are interested in what we're doing in the new year, check out resolutions.fool.com. It's a landing page. It's got a list of articles written by names that will sound familiar to you if you're a loyal listener of the show. And we're basically just talking about our different approaches to the new year, some changes that we want to make, and some advice for you guys, too, if you're looking to either overhaul your finances or even just make little tweaks. Uh, Todd, thank you so much, as always, for all of your input. Folks, I hope you enjoy digging into Johnson Johnson a little bit more after the show, if you're interested, or just checking out the com landing page. We will talk to you next week.